that, we believe that the seven things that should identify us is Christ-centeredness, discipleship culture, leadership development, family-based ministry, body life, community outreach, and worldwide missions. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last two, and really the, the fuel behind the last two of community outreach and worldwide mission. When it comes to our community, we must reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we will engage and evangelize the community through everyday relationships as well as through intentional outreach events. We will pray for fruit of our labors in our evangelism. And we will be intentionally multi-ethnic in our approach to ministry, taking into consideration how to reach the many people groups that surround us. We live in a very special location where the nations are brought to us. We need to steward that well. Also, when it comes to worldwide mission, we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and reach the world around us with the gospel. Therefore, we will foster a passion for the glory of Christ to, the, to spread throughout the world. We will link arms with like-minded men and ministries around the world. We will support missionaries through prayer, equipping, shepherding, and giving. And we will, by God's grace, equip and send men into the gospel ministry locally, regionally, and globally. That's our hearts. And it comes from verses like this. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. This is a glimpse behind the veil, as it were, into heaven, where the Father speaks to the Son. And the Father, speaking to the Son, says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to re restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is the heart of God himself. What's the driving force behind your evangelism? What's the guiding force, the motivating impulse behind missions? The title of this sermon is The Fuel of Evangelism. The Fuel of Evangelism. And I desire this morning, church, that as a result of our time together, that you would tell the gospel of Christ to lost sinners around you. That's what I want you to do. I don't want you just to want to do it. God wants you to do it. So that's the purpose of this morning. But why? What's the driving force? Well, everything God does himself is for his glory, right? 
A little earlier on in Isaiah, Isaiah 48, verse 11, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profane? And my glory I will not give to another. So God does everything for his glory. But at the same time, God also acts in merciful ways towards the undeserving, like you and I, because of his love for them as well. John 3, 16. God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only son. Notice it doesn't say there that God so loved his name that he gave his only son. We know that's true. But this also says that he loves the world. He loves us. So what's the driving force behind evangelism? How does the passion for the glory of God relate to compassion for people? Can you share the gospel with someone being driven to glorify God and get more worshipers for God and yet have no compassion for that person as you share the gospel? Is it okay to just emotionally check out and just deliver the, the, the message Make sure you get the message clear. Is that enough? Or is that all that God calls you to? Or can you share the love and compassion of Christ towards people in kind acts without mentioning their need of forgiveness and really say that you love them? Is it okay to invite people to love Jesus and just have a relationship with Jesus without demanding them to bow their knees to him in worship? Well, in Isaiah 49.6, we see the, the twofold man, uh, motivation of God the Father to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 6, The first part of verse 6, he, said, he says to the son, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. So you see, the father tells the son, It's not enough that just this local nation give you worship. It's not enough that just these people... Just this people group give you praise, my son. That's not enough. I need to make you a light. I need to spread your glory. That is, spread your light throughout the world. That's how much worship you deserve. That's what I'm concerned about. Is the exaltation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is what motivates the Father. To send the Son, but yet also notice verse 6 at the very end. Why? So that, so that my salvation, my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Notice it is not just the name of God, the fame of Jesus Christ, it is the salvation, the deliverance of sinners. 
from eternal harm. That the Father desires to reach the ends of the earth. So God is concerned about the far reach of the glory of his Son. And and he is concerned about the reach of his salvation for those in danger. This twofold motivation of God must be your motivation in your evangelism. So this morning, I believe God would have you evangelize with the compassion of God and evangelize with a passion for God. Evangelize with the compassion of God and evangelize with a passion for God. Those are our two points this morning. I want to begin with the compassion of God. God wants you to evangelize with His compassion, the very compassion of God. Now, why should we have compassion on the lost? Why should we have compassion for sinners? Well, we must have compassion for the lost because we know what awaits them. We know what awaits them. If they continue to reject God's forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, you know, don't you, Christian, what awaits that person? Eternal judgment. You see, people all around us, church, people all around us must be saved from eternal judgment. That's where the world is headed. And we must come to grips as as a people of God with the eternal misery of hell that awaits those who refuse to bow their knees to Christ. We must. John 3.36, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Wonderful promise. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But, he says... But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It abides on him. To believe in the Son, to believe is is not just to agree that Jesus existed. It's not to just give mental assent to the truths of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. It is to entrust. To believe is to not just trust, but entrust. Entrust. That is, hand over to Him with full trust. It is to hand everything over to Christ with full belief that he will take care of it all. Now, what is required for you to hand over? What are you required to hand over? Everything. All of it. It is to hand over your trying to get to heaven on your own. 
trying to earn God's favor by being good enough or attending church long enough. It is to hand over that self-reliance to stand before God and have His favor. It is to hand over your very life, friend. It's not just hand over your eternity to Him, though that is vital, but it is to hand over the present now. It is to hand over today and tomorrow to Him in total trust. That is what is required to have eternal life, faith. But notice in John 3, 36, notice that it, it does not say, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe in the Son will not see life. It doesn't say that. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have eternal life. This is because obedience to Jesus is always, always the product of saving faith. If you say you believe in the Son, you will obey Him. You will. And so Jesus, as it were, skips that in, the, in His contrast. You could say it this way. He who believes in the Son and thus obeys Him has eternal life. But he who does not believe in the Son and thus obey Him will not see life. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that you must obey Him in order to earn eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. You, all you need for eternal life is to believe on Jesus Christ. All you need to have eternal life right now, friend, is to place your trust on Him. It's all He requires of you. But, as you do that, you are handing everything over. All of your life. And it will show up. Your full faith in Christ will show up. In obedience. It's not to earn eternal life. It's to prove that you have it. So if you don't obey Him, you don't really believe in Him. Now, for those of us that are like this, for those of you, friends, that are like this, that Honestly, you say, you know, the pattern of my life is, is not one of obedience to Christ. And I see now that I don't have faith in Christ. If that's you, Jesus has some solemn words for you. The wrath of God abides on you. And I don't say that with a smile on my face, right? It is a sobering reality. Christian, if you tell somebody that the wrath of God abides on them right now, you should be holding back the tears. Because you know what awaits them. It's the wrath of God. 
the wrath of the creator of the universe, the anger and the fury of him, the jealousy of God for his glory and his namesake awaits that man, that woman. And so you should fight back the tears as you tell somebody that the wrath of God is hanging over them. It's already on them. It's not, some, it's not a cloud in the distance. It's not a coming storm. It's already here. And the clouds are full and ready to unleash upon them. That is the reality of the lost sinner. It already remains. It abides on you. And you cannot escape from out from under God's wrath until you go first to Jesus and trust him. You must trust him with your whole self as the only one who can save you from the wrath of God. It's, it's available right now. Come to Christ. Trust him. And the wrath of God will have gone on him and it no longer abides on you. That cloud is gone. You can have that now. And you can bask in the sun of the communion and the joy and the love of God on you. You can have that today. But if you refuse, be warned, friend. God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. Your rebellion against your Creator will not go unpunished. John Piper says it well in just a few words. He says in a few words what takes me ten minutes to say. With mutiny comes misery. With mutiny comes misery. Your rebellion against your Creator will result in eternal misery. Deuteronomy 32, 35, God says, Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. And retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. You see, vengeance is in the hand of God right now. He will carry out the punishment that sinners deserve for their crimes of sin against him. And all humankind has broken the law of God. All of mankind, therefore, must pay the debt, pay the fine of their law-breaking. We know what that's like, right? Come on, East San Jose. You know what that's like. Pay the fine of your law-breaking. That is the eternal reality of every sinner that has ever been born. If you refuse to go to Jesus, he will, he will come to collect your debt, your fine for your law-breaking. But you see, with this reality that there is a debt, there is a fine for our law-breaking against God, there is the hope that Jesus paid it all. 
on the cross, there was a payment that was made for you. Jesus absorbed, swallowed, was covered in the wrath of God. So it goes, if you're a Christian this morning, it went from the wrath of God being on you to the wrath of God being on Christ on the cross. And the favor of God that Christ earned is now on you instead of the wrath. That's the great exchange. But you have to receive it. You have to trust that Christ paid it all. But if you refuse even Jesus' payment that he made in your place, then, friend, rest assured, you will have to pay that debt. And you will pay that debt to God for all eternity in the judgment of hell. This judgment, Deuteronomy 32-35 says, is coming in due time. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip and the day of their calamity is near. It's coming in due time. God's judgment on, on sinners is coming in due time. It, it will not come a day too late and it will not be delayed or postponed. At that time, in due time, right on time, your foot will slip, it says. It is that you will fall into death and judgment. See, God is painting, painting a picture for you here. It's like you're hanging on to the side of a cliff. Imagine yourself hanging on by, by, by your fingernails, by just the grips of your toes, just barely to the side of a cliff. And down, as you look down from the edge of that cliff, you overlook a deep abyss full of darkness and flame. And it waits for you to fall in. The flames coming up every once in a while and licking the heels of your feet. It's full of God's wrath. And it will swallow you in eternal judgment. You see, the passing away of the unbeliever is described here as the foot slipping off that cliff. And you falling into that dark flame of judgment. In due time, your foot will slip. For the unbelieving sinner, your doom, it comes quickly. You see, God has set a date for you already when you will face him, when your foot will slip. Your foot will slip and your debt will be collected. Friend, you will stand before God. And the question is, when you stand before God, will you stand there all alone? Or will Christ be there at your side defending you in God's courtroom? Will you face God alone? Or will Christ be there? Showing his wounds. Saying, I paid the debt. I, 
I absorbed the punishment. Let him go. Let her go. Church, these realities, these eternal realities must produce a deep compassion for the lost. This wrathful judgment of God is just and right. So therefore, we don't respond. Friend, your heart should not respond with anger or a sense of injustice on God's part. No, He is fully just and right to do this. Rather, our response, church, should be compassion. Compassion. Like Jesus on the cross who pleads for mercy towards His very murderers. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You should interact with a lost person, whether it's a family member or somebody that you walk by on the street or that co-worker that you just cannot stand or that boss that is heavy-handed or that family member that you just cannot get along with, it seems like. You need to have the compassion of Christ towards them and think in your mind, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing as they reject you. And since the damnation of God is truly fair and just, then the mercy of God is all the more sweeter, isn't it? Isn't it, Christian? Because you know, I deserve to, for my foot to slip and to, to fall into judgment. That's what I deserve. If, we, if you want to talk about fair, that's fair. But it is that reality that for God to be fair, He should cast you into eternal darkness and wrath for all eternity. Yet at the same time, he offers his son. He offers mercy. It is the righteousness and the justice of God in his judgment that makes his mercy so gracious, so beautiful. You need to have compassion for the lost because you know where they're going, but also because that's the compassion that God has. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. More than, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See how he connects us being saved from the wrath of God through Christ with the demonstration of his love. God demonstrates his own love Love for us, church. Yes, he demonstrates his glory. Yes, he demonstrates his power. But he demonstrates chiefly his love. And it's a love toward us. If you understand who the us is, it should melt your heart. You see, in dying for us, Jesus delivered us from God's wrath. He was not just gathering worshipers to himself. Yes, he was doing that. But it wasn't just that. 
He was saving us from wrath. That's what he came to do. God's love, his compassion, are what move him to save us from eternal judgment. So we too, so we too must reach the lost with with compassion and love that seeks to save them from the wrath to come. We need to have that love. We need to have that compassion as well. Paul imitates this of Christ and gives us a model in 1 Corinthians 9.22 when he says to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. When we went through this passage last year, we saw that Paul's heart was just to remove any and every roadblock to the gospel so that he could drive the gospel of Jesus Christ into the hearts of men. And so he set aside his liberties, he set aside his privileges, he set aside his rights just to reach them. He said, if I could just save some, if I could just save one, it'll all be worth it. God himself saves sinners through your evangelism. He has left you on this earth to proclaim the gospel of eternal life in a world full of people headed towards eternal death. He has not left you here among sinners just to win debates or to defend conservative values. That's not why we're here. We're here to save some. He has chosen to use you, Christian, to rescue sinners out from under his wrath that will one day come upon them. That's why you're here. Now, is compassion our only motivation? Is it the ultimate motivation? Is being rescued from hell the whole picture of the gospel? Is that all the gospel is about? Is is this the central purpose of our salvation? Is our rescuing from harm? Did Christ die on the cross just to deliver a certain people out from eternal pain and torment? Well, that's where the other side of this coin comes in. We are to evangelize with a passion for God. Back in Isaiah 49, 6. Again, it is not just for the salvation, the deliverance of sinners that he wants to reach the ends of the earth. It is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that he wants to reach the end of the earth. It's the glory of the Son. That is the main focus. Now we understand that God is passionate for his own glory. In fact, Jesus himself said that he went to the cross to glorify the Father. John 12, 27 and 28. He says, as, as he, as it were, is, is looking at the coming cross, he says, now my soul has become troubled. 
And what shall I say? Father, forgive me from this hour. Is that what I'm going to say right now? He says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, he says. Then a voice comes out of heaven. The Father responds, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father responds, that's what I've been doing. And I'm going to do that in an ultimate way on the cross. That's why you're at this hour, my son. You have come to this hour to glorify the name of God. That is why Christ came. You see, the saving of sinners from judgment, as well as the judgment of sinners, are all for the glory of God. Turn with me to Romans 9. Romans 9. It's not just the, the, the saving of sinners that glorifies God, but even the, the judgment of sinners as well. God takes no pleasure, right, in the judgment of sinners, but yet it is good. It is right. Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if, what if, God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared to hand for glory? You see, Paul asked some hypothetical questions, but they're not really hypothetical. They're true. But he's building an argument here. He says, okay, we have a God who is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known on vessels of wrath, on people whose, whose end is hell. We, that's the kind of God that we have. He, he demonstrates his wrath and his power in the judgment of sinners. But he says here, but that's not the whole story, you see. That's not the whole story. What if that God, and by the way, he is this kind of God. What if he is the kind of God who also waits to show his judgment and his wrath and his power on sinners who reject him? What if he waits just so that he can draw some and show mercy to some. What if that's the kind of God that we have as well? Well, the reality is that that is the nature of God. What he is doing right now is he is patiently waiting. He is patiently holding back hell and judgment. Why? to make known, to display, to announce the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. 
Notice it's not to display his love, but it's to display the riches of his glory. So as he dispenses or gives mercy to people that don't deserve it, what is displayed? The glory of God. That's what we see. The gospel is exhibit A of God's glory. So when we evangelize or when we share the gospel with those around us, we are entering into what God is already doing in the world for his glory. This is what God is doing. This is why the end has not come yet. It's because he is displaying his glory in that he shows mercy to sinners. That's what this time is about. So your heartbeat, Christian, should, should be, let me reach people with the mercy and the gospel of Jesus Christ so that God's glory can be displayed. You see? That's why we go. That's why we open our mouths with our coworkers, with our friends, with our relatives, with that stranger at the supermarket, wherever you go. That's why you're a Christian everywhere you go. It's for his glory. It's for his glory. You see, God desires to, and he will demonstrate or display his justice and his power in the punishment of sinners. However, the reason he has enthroned all mankind into eternal darkness already is so that he could display his patience and his mercy now. He is being patient in his wrath, so that he can display the riches of his glory. And the chief way he displays his glory is by granting mercy to lost sinners. So, evangelize, evangelize with a passion for the glory of God because God is passionate about His glory. This is what history is about. This is what your Monday is about tomorrow, the glory of God. But also, you need to have that same passion. You need to have that same passion that God has for His glory. It's not enough to know about it. You've got to have it. You have to be passionate about what God is passionate. God's desires must be your desires. His passion must be your passion. His goal must be your goal. 1 Peter 2.9 2.9 says, But you, you, church, are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you can be at ease. So that you can go to heaven and not to hell. So that you can have a wonderful family and God will bless you with material things and health. No. No. 
That is not why you are a chosen race. That is not why you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. That's not why he owns you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he saved you. It's to proclaim his excellencies, not yours. It's for him to increase and you to decrease. That's why John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. God chose you. He set you apart unto himself. He chose to identify himself with you and you with him so that you can, you can proclaim Christ. Now here, proclaim comes from the word in the Bible for messenger or angel. But it has this prefix, this, 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 these few extra letters at the beginning that intensifies the outward direction of it. Therefore, it is to proclaim. That prefix is translated over into the English. It is to announce forth. It's not just to announce, but announce in an outward way. So yes, we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ from the pulpit to the church. But the idea is that it must go out of these doors into wherever you go, Christian. Right? When this service is over, some of you are praying that it would come sooner than later. When this service is over, where do you go? You go out, right? So how is the proclamation, how is the declaration of the glory of Christ going to go out? It must go with you. That's how it's going to reach people. It's through you. You can't just stand on the sidelines and let the leaders and the preachers do this. No, I give you the fuel. I give you the, the message. And then I join you as we all go out and spread the excellencies of Christ. You are to be proclaiming the excellencies, the, the glory, the virtues of Christ in the gospel. That is, you are to tell people what makes Jesus so wonderful. Can you do that? Can you tell people why you love Jesus? What he means to you? What he's done for you on the cross? Can you tell them that? Then you can do this. You can reach the lost. You can make a difference in this world, you can make an eternal difference in the, in the souls of mankind. A lighthouse positioned on a rocky coast helps sailors to, to navigate their ships by night, right? Now, there's two ways that uh, a lighthouse helps the sailors of the ship. 
it shines its light on the rocky shores, showing the sailors where the jagged rocks are and how to avoid those hazards. But the, light, the lighthouse also tells the sailor the location of the harbor, telling them where to go to reach their intended destination. Christian, Jesus says that you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. So we are called, you are called, brothers, sisters, to shine the light of the gospel of Christ so that sinners can know how to avoid destruction for all eternity. And we must shine the light of the gospel of Christ so that sinners will find the destination of their souls. Show them what they were made for. The praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. So yes, have compassion and show them that eternal destruction is awaiting them and plead with them to avoid that danger. But then point him to the glorious one. Point him to the Savior who can save them and who will give them everything that they could ever possibly need. The satisfaction of their souls. Point him to the one that deserves all their praise, all their honor, all their life. And you will be like that lighthouse bringing many to shore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, not just that we would agree with these things, not that we would just learn about why we should be evangelizing, why we should support missions. Lord, that's not enough. Oh God, move us with your heart your heart of compassion for the lost, and your heart to glorify your name in the world. Move us with those desires to action. Lord, I pray that we would share with, with, if it's just one person this week, that we would open our mouths and, Lord, bring to mind right now that person that, that we have been putting off maybe. We've been delaying and waiting just for the right opportunity to share the gospel with them or to even mention that we're a Christian, much less. God, I pray that you would make us uneasy until we actually open our mouths this week. I pray that you would would give us freedom to tell them who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross. Lord, the gospel is so simple a child can believe it. Certainly we can tell somebody what it is. Even if it's a simple thing. Even if it's just as simple as I I was living my own life, living for myself. I didn't care about God. Because of that, I deserved his judgment. But then I found out that Jesus paid my penalty. He died in my place on the cross 
so that I can be loved by God and I can love him back for all eternity. And so I just placed my trust in him. And I followed him wherever he would take me. Lord, it's as simple as that. May we speak the gospel to those around us. And Lord, may you give us fruit. Save souls. And use weak vessels like us. So that you would get all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.